Hello and welcome to the Finergo FinTalks podcast, where we connect you to the latest in regtech, compliance and anti-money laundering activity. My name is Dana Sigidu. I'm the host here at Finergo. And today we're talking about corrupt money flows the world over um, with a brilliant researcher in the field from Transparency International, Myra Martini. Uh, she's the research and policy expert and lecturer at Transparency International School on Integrity. Hi, Myra. Welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words? Hi, thank you so much for having me here. It's really a pleasure. Uh, so I'm with Transparency International, the Secretariat. We are based in Berlin and we are a global movement and we are working in over 100 countries uh, fighting corruption. Um, and we try to focus um, on the issues that have the greatest impact on, on people's lives. And I'm leading our work on illicit financial flows and anti-money laundering. That's, that's really great. It sounds like a really global uh, anti-corruption, anti-financial like, crime organization. Could you share with us some of the work that Transparency International does on like a daily basis? And also what its aims are with regards to ending financial crime and helping uh, anti-money laundering activity? Yeah, you probably, if you heard already about Transparency International, you probably know us uh, thanks to our Corruption Perceptions Index, which is one of the tools that we have. Uh, it was a very important tool and was developed to really help put corruption on the agenda. And I think it really succeeded on that. But we also have activities um, and other tools that have been developed to talk about corruption in other areas, in other sectors, and in particular in areas where the Corruption Perceptions Index uh, do not necessarily cover, right? One of, the, one of those areas is indeed financial crime and anti-money laundering and corruption that happens often or is enabled by um, more advanced economies. And so in, in, in this area of work, we have been leading global advocacy. We try to uh, bring the issues to groups like the G20, the G7, the Financial Action Task Force, uh, to make sure that countries, the most advanced economies uh, across the globe, are also taking action to ensure that they are not enabling corruption elsewhere and not allowing corruption corrupt individuals to hide uh, stolen assets uh, in their countries. So yeah, with, with corruption, one of the one of the big issues is the corrupt money flows and their impact on the global economy. How how does that actually work in real time? Like how does that affect the world exactly? Yeah, so it's very difficult to know how much money, how much stolen funds are moving across borders, right? We had in the past scandals like the Panama Papers or the Pandora Papers more recently that really helped us um, understanding a little bit better uh, how corrupt money is moving across borders. So usually how it works is that it's, very, it's actually very often that corrupt individuals want to put their money in safer economies, in safer environments. So that's why very often what we see is that um, money ends up invested in real estate in London, in New York, um, in Berlin, where I'm based, um, and so on and so forth, or in bank accounts in Switzerland. Um, while um, we also see um, attendance of big companies, powerful companies, 
going abroad and also paying bribes um, to get access to, to, to public contracts uh, across the, gro the globe. So how we have been working at Transparency International is we have been focusing on exposing the systems and the networks that enable corruption. Because what we see is that very often uh, in, corrupt, in, corrupt, in corrupt schemes, you have the same mechanisms being used. So it's an anonymous company, is a lawyer that uh, tends to help, help to set up the scheme, is a bank that turned a blind eye and allowed money to to enter uh, the financial, the global financial system and so on. So that's what we have been doing. We have been working to understand what are those loopholes and propose recommendations to close um, this loophole. Great, so that's a, that's a really comprehensive understanding of, of how corrupt money flows are able to, to form in the first place. But one of, one of the things that I always find really interesting is that these huge sums of money seem to move around really easily. Like when you read the news, when you read about, you know, things like the 1MDB scandal or uh, the Panama Papers or the Russia report in the UK, like there's, it's truly staggering sums of money. And sometimes it seems to be the wealth of a nation almost, right? Um, and yeah, I, I guess it's it's so much money that how do they manage to move it around without getting noticed so quickly like obviously you have a, a deeper understanding of, of how these complex structures work so if you could give us some insight into that yeah i think the number one tool that is being used to to move uh, large amounts of funds um, undetected is anonymous companies so it's still very easy we are in a better situation than we were perhaps 10 years ago but it's still pretty easy to open a company put someone else, a nominee, uh, as a representative of that company and leaving um, the person who really benefits and control from that company hidden. And through this company, you can then access the financial system, open a bank account. Um, there are still a lot of banks not asking enough questions. Uh, so it becomes very easy then uh, to move this money abroad and then invest, uh, buy luxury goods, uh, invest in real estate. Um, and it's very difficult for authorities to detect and to be able to link uh, that company and that money to an individual um, of interest. With these complex structures, there are company formation agents, uh, lawyers, bankers, uh, accountants, there's a, there's a lot of very professional people who are uh, at the heart of it. Do you think that's an issue of complicity and purposeful complicity? Or is it that the criminals are just very good at, you know, deceiving these people and getting their money past them? I think there is a mix of things. So those lawyers, accountants, corporate service providers, they are indeed considered the gatekeepers of the financial system, right? And they are considered the gatekeepers because they are in a very good position to detect, spot uh, potential suspicious activities and then report those to authorities. Now, what we see is different types of behavior. So we definitely have what we call the criminal service providers. Those are money launderers. They're the, the, the role in those schemes is really to set up the scheme and advise corrupt individuals on how they can best um, 
transfer funds undetected and so on and so forth. So there is indeed a group of, of people who are complicit and who are directly involved. But you also have um, others that are just taking the risk. So it's definitely a lot of money, right? So there is an incentive there in trying to search for high net worth individuals and clients. And then is your level of risk. You might not get all the documentation that you need. You might not ask all the questions that should be asked. And you might tolerate a higher level of risk because you're interested in the, in the profit that you make. So I think there are different degrees. And what we really need um, is, of course, good supervision, right? So you can detect the case and you, you should enforce no, and, and sanction those that are compliant and that you also have to make sure that those professionals have the right risk appetite. Yeah, that, that, that makes a ton of sense, right? I mean, there, there has to be some complicity, but at the same time, some people are just seeing dollar signs and, and want to make money because that's their job, right? It's And it's it's difficult to differentiate, I think, sometimes between high net worth individuals and corrupt money flows because high net worth individuals like luxury goods as they should. They, they, ha- they, have, they have all that money to spend. Um, but at the same time, you know, criminal organizations also like them because it's a great way to hide their money. So it's a, it's a very difficult, um, it's a very difficult problem, I think, when two interests align in that way uh, to detect who is honest and who isn't. So, I just wanted to just dig into uh, complex corporate structures because I know that's really the backbone of uh, criminal enterprise and, and money laundering as a whole, right? Like you said, the anonymous companies—they're the ones who are one of the one of the biggest players in in getting money into the global financial system uh, without being detected, uh, illicit money into the global financial system, I should say. And so, I guess where I'm is what can be done. Uh, to better identify these complex structures and figure out who actually is the ultimate beneficial owner of these anonymous companies? And also, how does knowing who know who owns what business help identify instances of corruption and money laundering from a practical example? So the problem is that um, it's still too easy to incorporate a company without needing to even tell authorities who is behind. No, There was a research uh, done in the past by a, uh, a partner organization in the U.S. that actually showed that it was much easier and uh, to op- incorporate a company in many states in the U.S. than to get a library card. You needed to give a lot more information about yourself uh, when trying to get a library card. So that's where we are, right? Um, so if we want to know um, what, if you want to hold those companies accountable, no, if you want to avoid abuse of legal entities and arrangements, we need to start collecting information about the real individuals behind those companies, who are the ones controlling and benefiting from from those companies. And we have a lot of examples uh, that um, this type of information helped uh, to uncover conflicts of interest, embezzlement, different types of corruption, and different types of crime also beyond corruption. One example 
is a very recent one involving uh, the foreign prime, prime minister of the Czech Republic, for example. So while he was uh, a prime minister, he established a company, put this company into a trust. Of course, nobody knew that he was behind. And he, in, while prime minister, decided on which groups, uh, which business groups in his country would get uh, subsidies from the European Union. And it happened that the company that was connected to him, but nobody knew at the time, was one of those receiving significant amount of money from the European Union. Later, some time passed, our partners in the Czech Republic were able to identify using the beneficial ownership register of a neighboring country that he was indeed the beneficial owner of that company. Uh, that helped them make um, a complaint to the European Union that assessed the situation and found uh, that indeed he was in a conflict of interest and asked for the money to be returned. So that's a very concrete example of how having access to this information is really, really important and how sometimes it's not sufficient that this information is only with authorities. No, it's, there is an added value here um, if others from the public, civil society, journalists can scrutinize the data. So you said a couple of things that really wowed me. In particular, the being able to open a library card more easily than being able to incorporate a company is incredible. Uh, I knew that we had those problems in the UK with Companies House. I didn't realize that they were so widespread. The research was uh, about incorporating companies in the US. And of course, with this company, you can then open bank accounts. But in theory, the banks still need to ask you more details than uh, about that company. But the what happened in the US, and it still is the case, is going to change because they're going to set up a beneficial ownership register. But what happens in the US is that in many states, you just go, a lawyer can go and incorporate an account, uh, a company and use that company later for several other things. And to open that company, you don't need to provide uh, not even a copy of a passport. The other thing you mentioned that was really interesting was the story about the, the former president of the Czech Republic, sorry, prime minister of the Czech Republic. I think that goes to show why it's so important that PEP screening also happens um, from these uh, banks as well. I'm, I'm kind of amazed that a what must be a tier one PEP for any um, finance institution in the region was able to uh, open an account for his hidden company so easily. That's a real shock. You also mentioned that it was thanks to having access to the UBO register of a nearby company that that was able to be discovered. Last year, on the 22nd of November 2022, the European Court of Justice ruled that granting the general public access to UB, UBO registers, uh, let me quote this so I get it right, constitutes a serious interference with the fundamental rights to respect for private life and to the protection of personal data, and as such is invalid. What does, what does this mean for the fight for, for, against financial crime? Because Transparency International isn't a bank. You know, they, they don't have that same level of legitimate interest um, in order to perform financial functions that a bank does. But there is a real legitimate social interest. And journalists are so vital and researchers and, you know, NGOs and pressure groups are so vital in speaking truth to power and revealing corruption. 
how how is this going to affect those sorts of investigations do you think yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for public access to beneficial ownership registers across the EU, the European Union would continue to be paying now subsidies to a company that was clearly in violation of conflict of interest rules. So what this ruling means is that I think it made two groups of uh, very, ha- very, very happy. One is corrupt and criminals, they're certainly very pleased with the result of this ruling. And the second are those uh, corporate service providers, lawyers, accountants, um, who are actually selling and profiting from secrecy. That's their business model. They go around and they sell this type of service to people across the world and to many corrupt individuals um, and uh, across the world. So I think those two groups are certainly the the ones that are very, very happy with the results of the ruling. But now I think it's also important to keep in mind that while public access uh, was invalidated by the court, the court also acknowledged the role of civil society and journalists in the prevention and combating of money laundering and also states that they should have access to beneficial ownership information. Now, the big question mark is how it is that this is going to happen in practice, right? Because immediately after the ruling, we see we saw at least eight member states shutting down access to their registers. And of course, this meant that journalists and civil society and also authorities from other countries uh, could no longer use. So now I think the big question mark going forward is what the EU, what member states will do uh, to ensure that uh, civil society and journalists can continue accessing this information and can continue using this information to expose corruption. Do you think that's even possible to do? Because I think one of the things that we've seen happen hugely thanks to the rise of social media and tech generally is the rise of citizen journalism. So people who aren't necessarily associated with a specific um, news outlet who start up a Substack or a newsletter of some sort and do their own investigations into, and sometimes, you know, can be really revealing uh, research work. Um, how do you think those sorts of people would even be able to access it? it? To me, it sounds like they wouldn't be able to at all. And I don't think there's any meaningful way that people can separate out journalists from normal citizens who are just, you know, doing research. It's and and also, you know, researchers and think tanks and all the, all the other groups that need to have access to this. Uh, this is this this comes across as a real win for privacy. Um, and I know that's been a huge discussion point for the EU in in the past few months, but. It, it does feel, on the, on the other hand, that it's that, that the ECJ has come to what's really an unworkable conclusion. They, they've realized and recognized that there's a, a need for the journalistic and the NGO access to the UBO registers, um, but they, they don't really have any way of protecting that class of people from everyone else. Yeah, and, and it is a known challenge because actually we shouldn't forget that we already had a similar system in place. So before the fifth EU anti-money lender directive established public registers, the previous directive, the fourth EU anti-money lender directive, had exactly a provision that said that journalists and civil society that had a legitimate interest or could demonstrate a legitimate interest 
could access this information. And at that uh, point in time, there were many challenges uh, for getting access. So like sometimes we would request and would take up to three weeks to get a response. Sometimes um, half of the things would come just blacked out, redacted. Um, so it wasn't easy. And it was also a burden for registers themselves because instead of putting resources into improving the register, improving the quality of the data, they actually had to spend time assessing the requests, telling who is a journalist, who is not, who has a legitimate interest and who doesn't. So it's definitely not going to be easy. The UBO registers, to my mind, are very much like uh, companies' house. They are government agencies which are understaffed and underfunded and don't really have the time to be able to be doing that um, without significant investment from government. And there's no motivation to to put that investment in there's no there's no benefit to that as such so i don't i don't think that can really happen uh and and in an effective way um by governments but i think one of the things that this that's most more likely to happen is they'll just put a blanket no to everyone um that's that's how it comes across to me when i when i read about this stuff and when and obviously talking to you now but I guess one of the things I find really interesting is how do you think the fight against financial crime will be damaged by not having access to the UBO registers? Knowing these ultimate beneficial owners is really important uh, from, for example, in the, in the Czech Republic uh, former president case, as you said. So how, how much money do you think will flow freely? Like how much corrupt money do you think will flow freely if... Um, these UBO registers not available publicly. Yeah, that's not easy to estimate, but we know for sure that um, EU companies have a good reputation. So we can expect that criminals will take advantage of that, right? And I think the EU, if the EU wants to shut their da- door to to dirty money, that's the wrong way of going about it. So I think there is definitely going to be a risk. But just to say that we also see a way forward and we have been pushing um, and advocating at the EU level. There is now the Anti-Money Laundering Directive, um, a reform of the Anti-Money Laundering Directive being discussed. Um, and the proposal that the parliament is, is making is a strong proposal and could help uh, ensuring that journalists and civil society and we are considering here a broad terms, what we call social watchdogs. So would also cover those independent journalists you were referring to, that they have access to registers and then they can search freely. So not that they will have to ask on a case-by-case basis to use those register, but that there is a presumption there of their legitimate interests and therefore they should be given direct access to search freely and use their register as they see fit. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting, right? That people should have access to to search freely, because I was thinking of uh, the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers and the Mauritius Papers. Uh, there have been a lot of scandals in the past few years, which were facilitated by um, journalistic research. By you know, there was the Independent Consortium of Investigative Journalists who worked on that for for a very long time. To, to bring to bring all of this intensive corruption to light. And do you think that with the current ruling from the ECJ, 
we will still see uh, revelations of scandals like this happening in the future? Or do you think that they're going to be impeded by this, I guess? You know, one thing that I think is very interesting is that a lot of those scandals, Panama Papers, Pandora Papers, and so on, are leaks, right? Those are documents that were leaked from a corporate service provider, from a bank, and this helped journalists to tell a lot of stories, right? Because this is information that is hidden. This is information that is not being recorded, often is not even with authorities. But what we have been seeing in the last years, it was a shift that journalists didn't necessarily have to rely on leaks, but now they could actually use public data to tell stories. And we saw this, for example, with Open Looks, which was a big investigative journalist project that was actually using uh, data from the Luxembourg UBO register. So we were seeing a shift there that was moving away from um, relying only on leaks to be able to use data to tell important stories. And now definitely this is going to be an impact. So I think it's pretty bad if journalists need to rely on leaks and if we as society need to rely on leaks to be able to understand how the people we are putting power, how our tax money um, is being used. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's, there's been great strides made in ending corruption in the past, thanks to the conscience of internal people leaking documents. I mean, many of history's great um, scandals have been revealed that way, like, for example, the Nixon tapes, right? And the Watergate scandal. But you're right, we shouldn't have to rely on those people coming forwards in order to in order to understand who is corrupt and who is not and who is who is behaving badly, essentially, right? I I really appreciate that we that we've a little bit stretched for time. So I've just got one more question for you, if that's okay. Yeah, that's um, fine. The one of the things that has always struck me about the fight against financial crime is that the cost benefit of assisting crime is always going to be in favor of assisting corrupt money flows. It is highly profitable to assist corrupt money flows. But to to give credit to the financial institutions who invest a lot of money into their compliance teams, into their compliance structures, the people who work in those companies and the people who work in those teams genuinely want to stop financial crime, in my opinion, from working with them for a very long time. That is is definitely the case. Um, But... What sort of cultural pressure and change do you think we would need to have globally uh, in order to make a real impact on the dirty money movement and, and ending, sorry, and in ending corrupt money flows? And I think it's really true. Uh, we have been analyzing several cases of cross-border corruption and looking specifically at the role of, of banks. And very often we see that compliance officers, for example, flagged, had concerns. But very often we also see that there is a decision from the top of continue with some of the transactions. So I think we need to, on the one hand, empower compliance officers and make sure that there is a direct line there and that their concerns are really taken seriously. And on the other hand, also change a little bit the incentive structure inside of of financial institutions, right? You shouldn't necessarily be just paying bonus um, uh, based on the amount of money one 
one is bringing to the to the bank but you should should also be considering what is the risk of taking take that uh, the risk that that person is willing to take uh, what are the measures that uh, that person that team um, is taking to to prevent dirty money from from entering the bank and so on and so forth and then finally i think we need a lot more from the enforcement and, and sanctions. Very often, the fines are just the cost of doing business. We need those to be um, actually starting to weigh in this balance there, right? So a lot more from the side of governments as well to ensure or to force a change in behavior. Yeah, it sounds like we really need top-down culture of compliance and rewards for compliance in order to have significant change across the board. Um, hopefully we'll have that happen. Uh, I think there is generally a move to that, uh, especially what we've seen recently in the past few years of new money laundering directives, new updates to the BSA, to the, sorry, to the Banking Secrecy Act. There's, I think there is, there is real appetite for, for this movement. Unfortunately, when it comes to changes of power, it's a game of baby steps, right? It's, it's, a, sing, it's a single step at a time. Myra, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, and this has been an incredibly illuminating conversation. For our listeners who want to follow you and find you online, where can they find you best? Yeah, we you can always visit the website of Transparency International, follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, we also have usually a weekly newsletter where we cover a lot of those topics. So yeah, it would be a pleasure to to keep in touch. Brilliant. Well, I already follow you on Twitter as well, Myra. So uh, we'll be we'll be talking again soon. Don't worry. Thank you. So, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank um, you so much for the invitation. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Finergo FinTalks. Today we were joined by Mario Martini from Transparency International, and we were talking about corrupt money flows the world over. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get them, and we'll see you next time.